You're at RT Podcast. We're about to hear a reading from Gustav Steinbrecht's Gymnasium of the Horse, provided by Classical Audio Horse Books and Gold Leaf Farms. Here we go. Section A, Part 2B, The Restraining Aids. Forward is the motto in the equestrian art, as anywhere else in the world. It is therefore necessary for the rider to have more means at his disposal to drive the horse forward than to restrain it. The restraining aids are limited solely to the action of the hands that give such aids by means of various bits to the mouth, chin, or nose of the horse. Although the rider's appropriate posture and weight distribution may have a reinforcing effect for the hand aids, they cannot replace the influence of the hands, just as the correct follow-up of the rider's weight can very much support the driving aids, but never completely replace them. I will talk later in greater detail about this support of the actual aids by body position and weight distribution, and will now discuss the action of the hands. The rein hand not only determines the direction in which the horse is to move, but also the tempo of its various gaits. It is therefore the main tool with which the rider speaks to his horse and communicates his will to it. The skill of the hands can justifiably be considered a measure of the rider's total skill. It is completely erroneous to believe that good hands could be an isolated, favorable characteristic of some riders. Rather, they are the result of a perfect seat and fine feeling. See and note one. If mobility and dexterity of the hands were equivalent to light and skillful hands on a horse, all magicians, pianists, and other such artists would automatically be imbued with this trait. Yet in practice, we find that this is certainly not the case, and even very tender women's hands can badly mistreat the mouth of a horse by sheer clumsiness. But we may see a rider with a fist that may have become sinewy and thick from heavy toil exercise his fine and sensitive horse with such assurance and skill that it is evident that the horse likes to work under him. We often hear the statement that somebody is not a particularly good rider, but has very good hands, or vice versa, that he is a very good rider, but has just one fault, heavy hands. This is an obvious contradiction, because whoever has really good hands on a horse is a master of the art of riding, even if his posture and his manners on a horse give the layman the impression of a lack of equestrian polish. A person who really has bad hands can never be a rider in the true sense of the word. No matter how firm his seat, how much courage and elegance of appearance he displays, his fault is the product of a lack of feel for and understanding of the horse. The influence of the hands becomes a guiding aid only by correct coaction and interaction with the aids of the legs and seat. 
The correctness of these guiding aids depends on the correct length of the reins, which in turn can be obtained only from the correct contact of the horse with the bit. This is the much discussed and described contact of the horse. The reins are the connecting means between the rider's hand and the horse's mouth. Shortening of the reins causes the bit to press on the bars and thus has an effect on the mouth which, in the correctly trained horse, propagates through the entire spine down to the last joint in the hind legs. According to the laws of physics, the speed and reliability of the messages through the reins should be greater the tighter the reins are held. But, since they act on a very sensitive organic part, excessive pressure of the bit will cause the horse to either escape the resulting pain, or the responsiveness to such bit action will be lost because the nerves in the part subjected to pressure lose their sensitivity. Either the horse escapes behind the bit by avoiding contact, and thus the influence of the reins by incorrectly positioning or arbitrarily moving its head and neck, or it has lost its mouth, that is, it has a dead mouth. It then uses the rider's hands as a support for the weight of its forehand as a fifth leg, so to speak. Both faults cancel out the guiding action of the reins, and both are produced by hard hands. Just as with the driving aids, where the legs should always have a natural, soft contact with the horse's body in order to guide the hindquarters, the reins as the guide for the forehand should also always be held with soft tension. This produces a light but steady seat of the bit on the bars, and that is called the contact the horse establishes with the rider's hands. It tells the horse the direction to take, and the rider is not only able to quickly and reliably express his will, but he also has one more connection with which to evaluate position and movement of his horse. Some riders have attempted to set a standard for this contact and also describe it in physical terms. They prescribe that the opposition the hand experiences from the horse's mouth should be approximately equivalent to the resistance of soft butter that is cut with a thread, or which is felt if a certain weight is pulled on a thread. Such comparisons are useless, however, since every horse in its individuality will produce its own particular type of contact, just as its gates will be different as a function of its unique conformation. Horses having fine, sharp bars, a light forehand, and a lively temperament will generally tend to take on a lighter contact and perhaps can never be forced into a firm one. On the other hand, horses with the opposite conformation will more or less have an opposite tendency. The understanding trainer will not fight such natural particularities but will try to handle them by suitable selection of bits and mainly by the skillful use of his hands. Even with one and the same horse, the contact will be different depending on its state of training. The more forward its center of gravity, 
the stronger must be the contact, since in this position the horse requires more support from the hands than guidance. Correct bends and turns are then out of the question. To the same degree as the centers of gravity of horse and rider, which must always be vertically above one another, are displaced toward the back, the finer must be the contact. The lightest bit pressure possible on the bars will then increase their sensitivity and enable the horse to discern and obey the softest movements of the rider's hands. There are three gradations in the degree of contact, namely the light contact, the soft contact, and the firm contact. The first is directed toward the haunches in upper-level dressage riding. The second is directed toward balanced or military riding, and the third is directed toward the shoulders in hunt and race riding. The length of the reins, the position of the arms against the body, and mainly the formation of the fists must be selected to correspond to these gradations. For a light contact, the reins are the longest since there should be as little tension as possible. The rider's body is slightly behind the vertical and his hands are closer to his body because he does not need much room for his very light tightening of the reins. The fist is half open so that only the thumb and forefinger hold the ends of the reins. However, the little finger and the ring finger are not closed. This type of fist formation has a dual advantage. Because of its weakened position, it is unable to have any harsh effect. And by alternately closing and opening his two lower fingers, the rider can influence the horse in a fine, imperceptible manner without having to move his wrist. Because of the contact it produces, we will call this fist formation the light hand, which often produces miraculous results with difficult horses that refuse to accept the curb bit because it greatly softens the effect of this bit. For a soft contact, the reins are a bit shorter, the rein tension a bit greater, the rider's position vertical, and the position of his hands a hand's width away from his body so as to give him enough room for stronger hand movements. His fists form the soft hand, meaning they are closed in such a way that the last joint of the fingers is extended and a hollow fist is formed. The soft fist is also conducive to a weaker effect and forms in a way the middle between the light and the firm hand. Many riders accept the soft fist formation as the only correct and permissible way, and they are right if they restrict themselves to training military horses. If they go beyond that, however, or if they want to use it to ride the horse in its natural carriage, they will soon discover its inadequacy. The firm contact requires the shortest reins partly because the rider's upper body is leaning more forward and his hands must be at a greater distance from the body for the often required strong pulls. 
While in the two previously discussed positions, the rider's lower arm should have a light, natural contact with his body. For the firm contact, the upper arm and elbow must seek a steady and firm support at the body in the faster gates to be able to produce the necessary resistance against the forward urging horse. For that reason, the hands must be formed into firmly closed fists so that all of the fingers participate in keeping the reins at the required length. With this type of contact, index finger and thumb cannot do this alone. This, then, is the firm hand, which every trainer must use from time to time as an aid or a means for correction when he is training a young horse. See and note 2. For the racehorse or hunter, where this type of contact is the rule, the bit must be selected accordingly. If the bars are not to be injured and all sensitivity lost, the Englishman, who is very experienced and practical in this field, has expediently combined the curb and the snaffle into the pelham and has in it an excellent hunting and steeplechasing bit. But it would be just as wrong to make a dressage horse in a pelham as it would be to ride a hunter in a curb with strong lever action. When working a horse, the trainer must know how to use these different hand actions, often in rapid succession. He must be able to keep the hesitant horse moving with a light hand, use his firm hand to get the horse that leans on the bit or pushes forward too much to settle down, and in between, use his soft hand to invite his horse to take on a quiet and uniform contact. The steady application of a firmly closed fist is the only punishment appropriate for the rein hand, regardless of the type of bit employed and whether one rides with one or both hands. Pulling and yanking on the reins is good for nothing other than injuring the tender mouth, making the horse head shy, and ultimately forcing it into such resistance that it will escape the rider's control completely, as by rearing and flipping over, running away, and so forth. If, in exceptional cases, the usual bit is of no avail, one should use the cavison, the lunge line, or the pillars. See and note 3. Trainers who do not know how to work their horses sensibly with the aid of these means are better off to give up riding and take on a different profession than to sin against such a noble creature as the horse with their lack of skill or unsuitable temperament. For that reason, I also cannot exclude from this rule the so-called sawing, which some experts use and consider permissible. These are quick, unexpected jerks on the bit to punish the horse for some bad habit, such as leaning on the bit or sticking out its tongue. They will never serve the intended purpose, but will frighten the horse off the bit and make it distrustful of the rider's hands. This treatment is likewise a misunderstood inheritance from the time when the cavison took the place of the plain snaffle.
Used with the former, such jerks can give us the same good results as they gave the old masters, because then we act on the nose with forceful success, but without the adverse effect on the established contact. Contact is correct, no matter to which degree the individual horse takes it, depending on its training, as long as the horse reacts or responds to the action of the hand. If, for example, both reins act in uniform restraint, the horse should shorten its movement. If this is prevented by simultaneous driving with the legs, the horse must come together relinquish the bet somewhat, and change from the now too firm contact to a lighter one. See and note four. If one rein is stronger than the other, the horse should bend its head and neck to correspond to the greater pressure. If, with the stronger use of one rein, the other rein provides support, the horse should turn toward the side of the greater pressure. As I mentioned before, all of these hand aids are nothing by themselves. They become successful only through correct coaction with the other aids, particularly the driving aids. The latter must maintain gait and contact, and only by uninterrupted and completely harmonious interaction of seat, hands, and legs can the horse unfold all of its power and agility under the rider. Correct contact is always connected with a good mouth. The mouth is called good or lively if it appears not only freshly reddened by freely circulating blood, but is also kept moist by the generous secretion of saliva, which changes to foam as a result of chewing on the bit. In this state, the mouth will always be sensitive and active. The rider must therefore invite horses that tend to have a dry mouth to chew on the bit by way of repeated gentle reminders with his hands. The so-called light arrests, half halts. Again, enhancing the secretion of saliva. Although good contact requires a good mouth, a lively mouth is not always connected with the correct contact, since the latter is the result of correct work and guidance of the horse, while the former may be innate. Horses, which by nature have a very acute sensitivity and develop extensive saliva flow from merely the presence of the bit, a foreign object in their mouth, may nevertheless completely lack the correct contact. The dead mouth is already externally evident from its dry appearance and bluish coloration, the latter being produced by an accumulation of blood in the veins. The rider's hand recognizes it immediately when the horse does not react to his aids and responds to his half-halts neither by chewing nor taking on a lighter contact but leans on the hand with unchanging pressure. This fault may be innate and may have its origin in great insensitivity and general laziness, or it may have been developed by incorrect treatment. 
young green horses that are tight in the throat latch and whose center of gravity by nature is far forward, or which, because of weak hindquarters, cannot be trained to come off the forehand, often have this fault for a long time until its causes are gradually eliminated by training. Riders who use up their horses in their natural carriage and are unable or unwilling to eliminate such faults fear the dead mouth greatly and appreciate a naturally good mouth that much more. A rider's good hand is distinguished by steadiness and lightness. If these two characteristics could be developed separately, the former by secure support of the arms on the upper body, the latter by correct fist formation, we would find riders with good hands much more frequently than is in fact the case. But how can the hand obtain a quiet position by way of support for the arms from the body if the body itself is continuously shaken by the movement of the horse? If this is the case, the rider must, to the contrary, freely balance his arms by keeping their joints relaxed, so as to absorb any shocks in the arms themselves, and thus maintain the hands steady, similar to the waiter who balances a tray of filled glasses, not with his elbow flexed, but with a freely extended, relaxed arm. The same applies to the lightness of the hand. Just as the rider's body cannot always properly follow the horse's movement, the hand cannot do it either. It will always have an inhibiting and interfering influence on the horse's way of going, which is the reason why a hard, clumsy seat on a horse always results in a hard hand, no matter how lightly the hands carry the reins. The light and steady hand depends on the light and steady position of the upper body, and it in turn depends partly on the correct position and the resulting correct gaits of the horse. With a green horse, where the movements are still irregular and restricted and do not yet allow the rider to take on a light and steady posture with the resulting light and steady hands, it is the trainer's main skill to nevertheless use his soft and elastic seat to produce a light and steady hand. However, to achieve this, he must often depart from the regularly accepted body posture and hand position. It is therefore a sign of great ignorance if the public judges his work only by the position of his body. How should he move the clumsy horse which still hangs on to its natural tendencies if he does not use his arms and legs freely? The expert rider, including all those who train their own horses, be it for love of horse and riding or as a profession, should be judged only by the results of his work, that is, by the presentation of a horse he trained himself, and more, yet, by the performance of that horse, than by his own position. Now that we have discussed the nature of the rider's hand, we will move on to its activity and will discuss the aids it produces. The straight position of the hand, in which the thumb points upward and the little finger downward, the fingernails facing the body, is the rest position. If the horse is straight, 
if both reins are of equal length, and if the hand is placed above the pommel in this position. The reins act with equal strength and will therefore keep the horse on a straight line. Since the main task of the outside rein is to maintain the required elevation of the forehand, it is very wrong to want to guide or turn only with the aid of the inside rein. It is just as wrong to want to turn the horse only with the outside rein, as this is so often the case when the reins are both of the same length and the hand is incorrectly moved to the side. Good-natured and patient horses will gradually understand even this incorrect aid and will obey it as well as possible in its incorrectness. Insensitive and spirited horses, however, will turn to the left when asked for a right turn and turn to the right when asked for a left turn, thus greatly embarrassing their riders. For a change of direction, the horse must most of all have the correct contact that is, it needs the secure and good effect of both reins to guide and support it. Therefore, during turning and changing position, the rider must pay attention to the length of his reins, the movement of his hands, and the other interacting aids. Since I can discuss the latter in detail only in connection with individual movements, I will here note merely the following generalities. For bending, the inside leg supports the inside rein in that it bends the horse's spine and advances the inside hind leg considerably underneath the load. For elevation, the outside leg supports the outside rein in that it fixes the horse's outside hind leg or keeps it from falling out. Both legs maintain contact by driving the horse into the hand and positioning it between the reins. The alternating slight yielding and taking up of the reins, which is so necessary for maintaining a sensitive, lively mouth, is produced in a fine way by repeated opening and closing and softly raising and lowering of the hands, and by a twist in the wrist, so that the little finger alternately faces the rider's body or the horse's neck. While doing this, it is not necessary to shorten or lengthen the reins, but if it is required for a transition to another movement, this must be done with the index finger and thumb of the right hand alone, so that the left hand does not participate and can continue to maintain contact. The same error which, as I have already mentioned elsewhere, is so often made in teaching the student the correct seat also occurs frequently during his instruction in guiding a horse, namely, prescribing the same forms and aids for the improperly trained horse as if the student had a perfectly schooled animal underneath him. The result is that he tries in vain and without success, learns to understand neither the reason for the aids nor his horse, and finally doubts the whole affair. If the horse just is not schooled well enough to respond to very subtle aids, such as a mere twist of the wrist, the student should be asked to use shorter reins and pull a little harder. Finally, 
I must speak quite emphatically against rounding of the hand in the wrist, which some instructors insist on so strictly. It definitely does not fulfill the intended purpose, namely to impart lightness or resiliency to the hands. This artificial position must, in the long run, be connected with effort and finally produces a cramped appearance, that is, something harsh, aside from the fact that it limits the range for stronger restraining aids. The wrist, like every other part of the rider, should remain in its natural, relaxed position, so that it will not tire needlessly and remain able to unimpededly develop its full power whenever this is required. See? Gymnasium des Pferdes, or Gymnasium of the Horse, Read from Classical Audio, Horse Book, and Global Leaf Horse Farms, Alachua, Florida, zur Verfügung gestellt. Vielen Dank an Classical Audio Horse Books, dass Sie uns dieses Buch heute vorlesen. Das sind sehr gute Anmerkungen, die wir uns alle einbrechen sollten. Vielen Dank.